Welcome back. Please resume your seats. Yes, Alan Johnson, that's you. Rebel that you are. And Tracy Thorne spilling her wine down Claire's cleavage, it seems. So David Mitchell, um, <laughs> David Mitchell's sixth novel, The Bone Clocks, takes us from Gravesend in 1984 to a horribly believable uh, near-future dystopia in Ireland in 2057. It features a whole universe of characters, the feisty Holly Sykes, the bitchy, unlikable, and yet strangely fascinating Crispin Hershey, who is definitely not Martin Amos, more of which later, not Martin Amos. No, he's not. Well, we should have thought about that, shouldn't we? A little bit more. Desiccated embryos, I know. Anyways. So I know it's a T you keep saying, but anyway. Um, and Marinus, characters from previous novels crop up in previous novels as well. Black Swan Green is named as a village. So the people who like the self-referential, kind of self-knowing bits of it will enjoy it. It's fantastical, it's fantastic. It moves around wildly in time and space, yet itself is not portable. It's fucking massive. Um, anyway, he's going to find out tomorrow if he's shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. No nerves, no pressure. Please welcome David Mitchell. Thank you very much uh, for the introduction, Damien, and thank you very much for being here. And uh, what an honor to read after Alan and Esther. Weren't they amazing? They were fantastic. Uh, Alan expressed a little bit of reticence about sort of being a real writer, if, if, if I understood him correctly, but um, in, in, in his remark about not being able to hold a candle, but not at all, Alan. You're, you're a writer to your bone marrow. It's, it's beautiful work. So uh, I am going to attempt in, in a short time just to read three, uh, just to read from three, three sections of the book. Um, rather alarmingly, the first section actually mentions someone who's here in the front row, <laughs> uh, so I thought, no, I can't. But uh, but but uh, I've been assured by um, Damien that the gentleman in question will take it in in uh, in good grace. Here we go. Oh, uh, you need to know it's 1991, and I'm a West London posh kid. The Buried Bishop. You also need to know what the Buried Bishop is. Uh, it's a pub and not a really obscene double entendre. <laughs> the, Buried bishops, a gridlocked scrum, and all you can eat of youth. Right, Stephen Hawking and the Dalai Lama write, they posit a unified truth. There's short denim skirts, gap and neck shirts, Kurt Cobain cardigans, black Levi's. Did you see that oversexed pig by the loos and dressing me with his eyes? Or that song by the Pogues and Kirsty McColl booms in my diaphragm and knees. Like, my only charity shop bargains were head lice and scabies and fleas. It's, uh, it's a student pub, as you may have gathered. <laughs> A fug of hairspray, sweat and links, Chanel number no. five and smoke. Well-tended teeth with zero fillings revealed by the so-so joke. Have you heard the news about Schrodinger's cat? It died today. Wait, it didn't. Did, didn't, did. <laughs> High-volume discourse on who's the best bond on Gilmore and Waters and Sid. On hyper-reality, dollar-pound parity, Sartre, Bart Simpson, Bath's myths. Make mine a double. George Michael's stubble, like music actually expired with the Smiths. Urbane and entitled for the most part, my peers, their eyes, hopes and futures, all starry. Fetal think tankers, judges and bankers in statue pupillari. They're sprung from the loins of the global elite, or they damn well soon will be. Power and money like poo, bear and honey stick fast. I don't knock it, it's me. 
Oh, speaking of loins, has anyone told you you look, like, you look like Demi Moore from Ghost? Roses are red and violets are blue. I have a surplus of butter and Ness is warm toast. Hugo, you okay? Penhaligon's smile is uncertain. We're still logjammed two bodies back from the bar. Yeah! I have to half shout. Sorry, I was light years away. What have you to myself, Johnny? Toad asked me to invite you to his last all-nighter tomorrow before we all jet off home. It'll be you, me, Eusebio, Bryce Clegg, Rinty, one or two others. It's all cool. Penhaligon makes a not-sure face. And my mother's half, half expecting me back at Tread the Vaux house tomorrow night. Oh, no pressure. I'm just passing the invitation on. Toad says the, the ambience is classier when you're around. Penhaligon sniffs the cheese. What? Toad said that. Yes, yes, he said you've got um, gravitas. Rinter's even christened you the pirate of Penzance because you always leave with the loot. Johnny Penhaligon grins. Would you be there too? Me? God, yeah. Wouldn't miss it for the world. You took quite a clobbering last week. I never lose more than I can afford. Scared money is lost money, poker. You said that. Wise words for card players and economists. My partner in recreational gambling does not deny authorship of my freshly minted epigram. Well, I could drive home on Sunday. Look, I won't try to sway you one way or the other. He hums. I could tell my parents I have a supervision. Oh, which would not be untrue. A supervision on probability theory, psychology, applied mathematics, all valid business skills, as your family will appreciate when you get the green light for the golf course at Tredevo House. Toad's proposing that we just raise the pot, li the pot limit just a smidge to £100 per game. Nice round figure and quite a dollop of holiday nectar for you, sir, if your luck holds. Not that the pirate of Penzance seems to need luck. Johnny Penhaligon admits, I do seem to have a certain knack. I mirror his chuckle. Who's a pretty turkey then? <laughs> That's the first scene I'll read. The next one is set at uh, in Hay Festival in 2014. Uh, I'm a grumpy middle-aged writer who is totally modelled on me. Uh, <laughs> The Britphone Pavilion was designed by an eminent architect I've never heard of and quotes Hadrian's Wall, the Tower of London, a Tudor Manor, post-war public housing, Wembley Stadium, and a Docklands skyscraper. What a sicked-up fry-up it is. A holographic flag of the Britnet logo flutters from its pinnacle, and you ingress through a double-sized replica of 10 Downing Street's famous black door. You can see why I chose this bit tonight. Mm -hmm. um, the security men are dressed as beef eaters and one asks for my, for my VIP lanyard I check my jacket, my trousers, my jacket again oh sodder dog, I put it down somewhere look, I'm Crispin Hershey sorry sir, says the beef eater no ID, no entry I'll check your little list Crispin Hershey, the writer the beef eater shakes his head oh, I got my orders I did a sodding event here only an hour ago. A second beef eater comes over, eyes ashine with fan glow. You're never. Are you really him? Oh, my God, you are. Yes, I am. <laughs> I glare at the first. Thank you. The worthy beef eater walks me through the small lobby where lesser mortals are patted down and have their bags checked. I'm sorry about that, sir. The Afghan president's here tonight, so we're on amber alert. My colleague back there is not au fait with contemporary fiction. And to be fair, 
you do look older on your author photos. <laughs> you do look older on your author photos. I double check this actually pleasing sentence. Oh, do I? Oh, if I weren't such a fan, sir, I wouldn't have recognized you. We enter the pavilion proper where hundreds are mingling, but the worthy beef eater has a favor to beg. Look, sir, I shouldn't ask, but he produces a book from inside his ridiculous uniform. But your new book's the best thing you've ever written. I went to bed with it and read it right through to dawn. My fiance's mother's like a huge fan too, and well, for premarital brownie points, I, would you mind? I produce my fountain pen, and the beef eater hands me his book, already turned to the title page. So, only when the nib touches paper do I notice I am signing a novel called Best Kept Secret by Geoffrey Archer. <laughs> I look up at the beef eater to see if he's taking the piss, but no. Would you write to Bridie on your 60th birthday from Lord Archer? <laughs> a famous columnist from the Times is standing three feet away. Dedication written, I tell the bouncer, so glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, that's the second reading. <laughs> and here's a third. Uh, it's the 15th of March, 2025, and my... Um, Narrator of this section, whose name is Marinus, who some of you may know if you've read Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot, um, has received this letter from Norway. I apologize in advance to any Norwegians in the audience whose language I am now about to butcher. Dear Marinus, first I beg your pardon. I don't know if Marinus is Mr. or Mrs. or Doctor, your family name or your given name. Pardon also my poor English. My name is Argyanes Odegaard. No muffled <laughs> laughter, so, so, uh, so I might be in the clear. I, I don't think there are any Norwegians here, I'm not sure. Oh, there's one oh, yeah, in the yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yes, sorry. Yes. Okay, oops. I'm just kind of um, channeling the Swedish chef from the Muppet Show, and, it kind <laughs> of, and, and hope nobody notices, but I do apologise. Uh, in fact, afterwards, if you've got a moment, could you come up and... Teach me how to say it, because then I can just stop apologising at everything <laughs> I do. Maybe Mrs. Esther Little told you my name, but in this letter I will assume she did not. I am a 74-year-old Norwegian man who lives in Trondheim. She's done okay. with that. Okay. A town of my na native Norway. In case you don't know why a stranger is sending you an old audio machine, here is the full story. My father established the Oeuvre Fjellberg School for the Deaf in 1932 because his brother Martin was born with deafness and in those days attitudes were primitive. I was born in 1950 and I could sign fluently, in Norwegian of course, before I was 10. My mother managed the office of our school and my uncle Martin became the groundsman. So, you can imagine, our school and its students were the life of our family. I graduated from Oslo University in 1975 with a degree in education, and I returned to Trondheim to teach at Ørfjellberg. I established a music and drama department. I shouldn't have said the Swedish chef thing, because that's now all you see, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, because also, I love the violin. 
Many non-people do not guess that deaf people can enjoy music in various ways, so it was our school's tradition to work with our local amateur orchestra to produce a spring concert for an audience of both deaf and non-deaf people. Signing, dance, amplification, images, and so on are used. In 1984, when this story happened, I chose Jean Sibelius's The Swan of Twenola for our annual performance. It is very beautiful. Perhaps you know. Anyway, in 1984, we had one dark cloud above our landscape. Do you say this in English also? Namely, the financial position of our school was critical. We are a charitable foundation, but we required a big subsidy from Oslo to pay for salaries and so on. I will not bore you with old politics, but the national government at that time cut our subsidy to oblige our students to attend another school two hours away. We protested the decision, but without financial independence or political muscle, our precious school was to be shut after half a century of excellent work. For our family, for our students, this was a tragedy. However, one day in June of 1984, I received a visitor in my office. She was in her 50s, perhaps. She had short grey hair and masculine clothes and the face of many stories. She apologised for disturbing me in foreigner's Norwegian, then asked if we could speak English. I said yes. She said her name was Esther Little. Esther Little had attended our students' recent concert and enjoyed it greatly. She had also heard of the school's bad financial position, and she wished to assist, if possible. I said, if you have a magic wand, please, I am listening. Esther Little put a box of mahogany on my desk. This is the wooden box I send to you. Inside was a portable cassette player and one cassette tape. Then Esther Little explained this deal. If I keep these items for some years and then post it to her friend Marinus at an address in New York, she would tell her lawyers in Oslo to make a large donation to our school. Should I agree? Esther Little read my thoughts. She said, no, I am not a drug lord or a terrorist or a spy. I am an eccentric philanthropist from Western Australia. The cassette is a message to a friend, Marinus, who will need to hear it when the time is right. As I write this letter today, I don't know why I believed her, but sometimes you meet people who you believe. It is an instinct. And I believed Esther Little. Her Oslo lawyers were a respectable conservative firm also, so perhaps this influenced my decision. I asked, why did she not simply pay her Oslo lawyers to post a box to New York on a certain date in the future? Esther Little said, lawyers come and go. Even discreet ones are visible, and they all work for money. But you are an honest man in a quiet corner of the world, and you will live a long time. Finally, she wrote down the donation she offered. I am sure my face became pale like a ghost when I saw the number on the paper. Our school would be safe for five years at least. Esther Little said, Tell your board of governors that the money was donated from a wealthy anonymous donor who believes in the work of your school. This is the truth. The box and our deal should be our small secret, is what I understood. We shook hands. Naturally, my last question was, when do I post the box to Marinus in Manhattan? 
Esther Little took a small porcelain statue of Sibelius from her pocket, put it on a high bookshelf, and said this, On the day Sibelius was smashed into many pieces, that day I must post the box. I thought I had not understood her English, so I examined her request carefully. If the statue broke next year, I must post the, uh, sorry, next week, I must post the box next week. If it broke in year 2000, I must post the box in year 2000. If I die before the statue breaks, then I never post the box. Yes, that is the deal, said Esther Little. Like I said, I am a touch eccentric. We said goodbye, and to be honest, when she was gone, I wondered if I dreamt her. But next day, the lawyer telephoned from Oslo for our bank account number, and every kroner Esther Little promised was transferred. Oeuvre Frelberg was saved. Three or four years later, the government ideas changed greatly, and big investment was made for our school, but there is no doubt Mrs. Esther Little rescued us at our worst time. In 2004, I became principal, and I retired a few years ago, but I am still the governor, and even today, I use my former office as a study. All those years, Jean Sibelius watched my office, like a man who knows the secret. You can guess the ending, I think. Yesterday was the first mild day of spring. Like most people in Norway, I opened the, day for, I opened the window for make fresh air in my office. Students was playing on tennis courts below my window. I left my study to make my morning coffee. I heard a noise. When I returned, Jean Sibelius was on the floor. His chest and head was in many little pieces. There was a tennis ball near. The chance was 10,000 of one, but the time came. So I am sending the box, as I promised, with this strange story. I hope the message on the cassette is clear after 40 years, but I never listened it. If Mrs. Little is still walking this world, if so, surely she is over 100 years old, give her thanks and regards from an honest man in a quiet corner of the world who has lived a long time indeed. Sincerely, Agnes Odegaard. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm banishing the Swedish plot, the, the Swedish chef, the hardy gurdy from my head. Um, it's a series of five or how many connected? Six. Six interconnected kind of Novellas. novels in yeah. a way, aren't they? I mean, yeah. and I wonder. Um, each one is dominated by a particular character, although certain characters are dominant and others kind of appear almost incidentally um, in each story. And some of them are from other novels and some of them are totally new, like, like Holly. And I wonder if each novella came to you as a character or if you wrote the story and chopped it, chopped it up into characters. How did, you, how did you come up with that structure? Um, because, embarrassing as it is to admit, I, I've only very recently discovered that I'm not actually a novelist. I'm this terrible, fake novelist who can only write novellas. Right. Um, or write in smaller units. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I can't kind of do the whole, the full Tolstoy Monty and kind of keep one of those But this is quite there. mighty. Uh, it is, but it's broken up, as you say, into six novellas. Right. It seems that kind of my optimum... Narrative form is sort of 70 to 130, 140 pages 
or so. That's sort of enough to get going. Uh, but it's brevity represents a, a getaway car to take you away from the crime scene of tedium. <laughs> do you uh, really feel that? metaphor, but it's the best I can do with Do you really feel, I mean, do you feel, with, the, with some of these novels, did they go on beyond each section and you picked the kind of the best point to end them and, and there are, there are, there's a continuation for them or did you just stop there and not go any further? Um, Honestly. No, um, I'm always honest with you, David. I know How you could are. I not be? Um, I'm the third person to say there are many writers here today who will know what I'm talking about, but but the, uh, a plot just has the right length, mm. and uh, when it's done, you know. Okay. Uh, you start to smell smoke if it's in the oven too long, and you I should take it out. Oh, I, I, I will stop the impromptu metaphors now, I promise okay. you. Okay, um, um, or Alan will do more poetry, and that would just end very, very <laughs> badly for everybody. That wasn't such a bad poem, no, I thought. It really, I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love the character of Holly, and, and when, when, when it when it began, it, it, she's com to me completely believable. She's like loads of girls that I knew, uh, um, and and you know, I wonder where you know where where she came from and how you got so into that voice because you know it's the first voice. You could have started the story at other points, but it's the, it's the first voice and. And we really go with Holly. We're sympathetic to her. If you're a bookish 13-year-old, especially a bookish stammering 13-year-old, um, comprehensive schools are perhaps... You're, you aren't aware how lucky you are to be in one. However, if you're a 40-year-old novelist and you need to do voices from outside your social point, then, then you bless them retrospectively. Uh, so Holly was one of the girls from school. An amalgam of them who would scare me with their kind of toughness and their forthrightness and their attitude and the Dr. Martin boots. And, and yeah, 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 they scared me. But I'm really glad that they were there, uh, even though I wasn't that glad that I was there. <laughs> um, and in common with Esther's character, you know, she Holly's growing up in a pub, um, mm. and you know she's got an, she's got an Irish family, um, and things are kind of quite tough. Um, but you know, she's 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 getting on with it. And then something very strange starts to happen in her life. She starts to hear voices. Yes, yeah, she starts to hear voices in her head, uh, which means, of course, that you're losing your mind or that you're. Uh, or that the um, curse of schizophrenia is starting to brush you. But uh, but what if they're real? Uh, so that was the what if that sort of allowed that that plot line to shoot and grow tendrils. And so we meet Holly at the beginning, and she's hearing the voices, and she's saying what if, but of course they're not true. Yeah. Um, and also at the beginning of the novel, a great tragedy occurs in her life, which is the disappearance of her younger brother. Yes. Um, yeah. And we follow Holly through her life at different points. In fact, in kind of some ways, it's sort of Holly's story, I think. Yeah, it is, Of yeah. her uh, being the dominant kind of character. And we follow her right into old age. Yeah. Was that always your intent, that we would kind of go all through Holly's life, or did you just kind of love her so much, slash be scared of her, <laughs> that you wanted to spend time with her? Um, I was interested in what Esther was saying about how sometimes um, you book you think you are writing just turns out to not be this beautiful marble imperishable edifice that will still be here in a hundred years but actually a load of manky scaffolding 
but it's okay because you need the monkey scaffolding to then go and build the real book. That's, that, that's, that's what happened with me too. Uh, it was going to be a, 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 an unwritable series of 70 short stories about Holly from year zero to year 70. I thought, this is great. No one's sort of doing this before. And then I started <laughs> on it. And, then, uh, and that, there's, that, a reason. there's a reason. There's a reason. I should recognize that flag by now, but I never do. Uh, that's my problem. Yeah, I mean, the first reason is that until sort of they're about aged eight, basically, unless they're yours and you love them, they say some cute things occasionally, but novelistically not terribly interesting. That's Are you talking about your own children uh, here? Yes! Much as we love them. And then the other problem is that I discovered you read short stories in a different way to how you read novels. Uh, you read short stories more like a poem. Uh, every line, every syllable, every weighted, hefted, dovetailed thing you watch and polish and absorb because you don't know if it will be crucial to the whole or not. You, you sort of you just experience like a se like a little s sequence of kind of linguistic gemstones. Uh, you can't do that for 600 pages. Uh, you can't. No. So it's not that you skip bits, but you do read with different sort of gears of attention. Um, yet here I was asking someone to read a novel made of 70 short stories as if they were short stories. And, and you just didn't know who was important, who'd be coming back, what, because you can't flag them or use foreshadow or backflash in the same way, these sort of tricks that you can with a larger scale narrative. So that went out of the window. Uh, instead of At year what? Uh, 15. Okay, okay um, not too bad. Yeah, I gave it to my wife and she was brutally honest, as always. Bless her. Um, and so then, not 70 stories, but how about a sort of seven ages of woman mm. kind of story? Again, sort of, I, I snuck the first decade into chopped up back flashes throughout the later six but it, it's it, it it evolved morphed into uh six ages six decades of holly but also the world she's in and how the world's changing uh with um as if that wasn't enough this you know murderous feud between two circles of semi-immortal subplots which kind of erupts into her life at various points one of them but it, it erupts into the narrative as well. I mean, you know, you could, uh, you could read the book as sex novellas and it could entirely not have that sort of fantasy subplot between these two warring groups of immortals. And yet, obviously, it wouldn't be the same book if you, if you did. Mm. But it, and, each one of them and each one of them stands alone. And I'm wondering, with, with that plot that comes in, I mean, there are certain characters who have a lot to do with the plot and then other characters who do less. Um, so at certain points, it feels like you're just reading a novella and you're reading about this character, Crispin Hershey, and then suddenly the plot kind of, you know, impinges on him. And I wondered, did you just have the plot and you thought, I'll kind of share it out between the different bits? Or did the plot genuinely come to you and then you sort of backstitched it? Um, it's, I, 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 I wish I could answer that with more blinding eloquence and a statement, well, it's a bit of both. Um, <laughs> but, well, it's a bit of both. Um, it, it, it's... It's it, all right if it's a bit of both. Yeah. That's um, fine. No, that, that, that is all right. No, um, it's not quite, because there's a deeper question under there, which, uh, which is, to what degree do you pre-plan and to what degree do you find things as you 
go along and, and, and I suppose it's that but also like you refer to the the mad monk in the thousand awesomes of Jacob Bazoo and I wondered when you were writing that novel did you know that he was going to pop oh, up in this novel as well I mean if yeah. you say you're not holding it all in your head but there's a lot of reference back to previous novels and hints about future novels um, Malinus this um character has uh, I've, I've been holding him in my head for a while just the idea that uh, and Maybe it's a midlife thing, I don't know, but um, uh, the idea of a character who has a life, dies, 49 days later, wakes up in the body of a sick child who will soon recover, and then he or she has that life, and then the same happens again and again and again. Uh, I, 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 uh, that was just irresistible to me. I mean, that, uh, that sort of makes me drool almost physically. Even now, I'm kind of having to wipe the drool away from the kind of... A, At this um, point in your life, in your midlife, you mean? Yeah, well, um, what, a, what an opportunity to sort of explore mortality from someone who has such a different relationship with it. Yeah. What are the ethics of immortality? What um, And by looking at those, hopefully looking at the ethics of mortality, especially the intergenerational ethics ethics and this sort of sort of comes to the fore in the final section just the notion that we are funding our wonderful godlike better than julius caesar style standards of living no. uh, now on on tabs that our children and grandchildren environmentally and in terms of restore and in terms of resources are going to have to pay but if 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 it was you that was going to have to pay then would we still be the same, mm. uh, etc. So this uh, kind of Faustian deal, which di different characters are asked to make, aren't they, throughout the book? And some of yeah. them are conscious that they're making the deal, and others of them aren't. Yeah. You know, Hugo Lamb, for example, who I think is actually quite sexy, although he's evil. Um, um, I, I, that's Maybe my those addendum. two are not unrelated. Though, yeah, maybe. and um, sexy because he's evil. Um, and um, he's, you know, he's the guy who's playing cards at, at, at the beginning. Mm, mm. He meets Holly at a certain point, um, sleeps with her when she's living in a, in a, is a working in a ski chalet, and they have this kind of one night stand. And he, the next day, is offered a choice to join this kind of, you know, crazed cult, as it, as it were. And he doesn't know that that night is going to get that bargain. Yeah, he the doesn't. Next day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he's kind of inducted in. So I, I like. But I he never forgets her. And right yeah. at the very end, uh, that was sort of a crucial little link. Yeah, um, it is, and I loved that because I really didn't see that coming. That was a thank moment. you. Well, uh, I was dazzled by that. Uh, it's one of the joys of my narrative life to be able to um, fool Damien Barr. So <laughs> thank you. <very> <laughs> <laughs> um, and at at the end, um, uh, well, no, before we get to the end, let's just do quickly talk about Crispin Hershey because I have heard you say on Front Row, among other venerable programmes, that you know it is, that it's not Martin Amos. No. Um, Why would I um, do that? I, I, I don't I, have the I, energy for confrontational literary spats. And he's a great writer. And what? No. Well, I think he can be a great writer. But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I've he got said that. He I said, said that. that. I said that. Um, but, 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 you know, but, the, the, but there is lots of um, amusing kind of bitterness in there about Crispin. But it goes, it's not vodka. It goes sure. beyond the point of, um, uh, of that. And Crispin actually becomes bigger than that, but bigger than a parody. He has an opportunity for redemption, doesn't he? Yeah, this is the thing that Holly does. I mean, she, she, she's... Uh, I. Um, she's a chance. For, I, I'm I'm a dad and 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 have been for some time. And unlike in my first three books, I've become really interested just in the kind of the 
mulch and the mud of human relationships. And, and, and she's, as well as everything else, she's an opportunity for me to sort of almost create an almanac of all the basic human relationships there are, that there's sort of mother-daughter, sister-brother, daughter-father, cousin-cousin. That's a little bit of a minor one, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, and then in the end, grandmother, grandmother, yeah, granddaughter. grandmother, granddaughter, guardian, ward, sister, sister. For the men she encounters, she's she sort she's sort of an opportunity almost to be a oh, and then lover, lover of course as well, um, partner, partner. There isn't really a word for someone who you've had a kid with, but uh, we mother, father, <laughs> baby, mama. It, to each other, though. Yeah, I don't no, know. It's we'll sort of the that. unmarried husband, unmarried wife. They're sort of progenitor. Oh, progenitor, progenitor. Jolly. Good. So, co-progenitors. Uh, glorious. Um, for the men, she doesn't know she's doing it, but she offers them a chance at redemption and to be the better man inside that they could be if they could shed themselves of their vices and their faults and uh, um, how lucky we are in reality if we find someone who gives us that chance mm. and uh, hang on to them, that's what I say mm. um, but um, yeah, that's what she does and some people do take the chance at becoming a nobler human being and Crispin Hershey is one and, 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 and that's his narrative journey really. it's essentially Scrooge but instead of miserliness, <laughs> it's ego. Yeah, uh, it all sounds a bit Buddhist now. I think of it in a way, but just a tad. Transmigration of souls as well, yeah. all of that. Now, um, I have heard you say recently that you you had your next four or five books in your head. And um, what what? The, uh, don't look at me like you're surprised. You said it. It was your no, next no, no, four no, or I five uh, next four or five books um, <laughs> that you were that you were going to write. And and are they are they similar in structure? Or are they kind of you know many many novellas? Are there those same themes of transmigration, the jumping about, the the characters coming in? What? I have a really sense yeah. of where I, they're going. I, I mean, um, people keep referring to my saying. I, I didn't realise it was that odd. The that uh, you have five or yeah, six. Yeah, I mean, well, I'd, well, we'll ask the writers and the audience sure. on the way out it's how they feel about that. Um, it isn't that I've mapped them all out and I know exactly no. what will happen, but I kind of know them well enough to say if I'm doing an event somewhere to go to a museum, if that museum is related to it. So I know enough to sort of start to hoard research materials, but that's about it. Uh, the thing I'm doing now is going to be my first ever very short book. Um, and then after that, something a bit longer. And beyond that, they start looking a bit hazy and large again. But it's uh, <laughs> uh, okay if I'm a little bit evasive about that one because That's it gets fine. onto Wikipedia. And then and then I change my mind and I sort of lead a trail of false Wikipedia articles behind me. That's okay. Thank I'm you. I'm going to take questions now. Of course, Sylvia. Uh, so a question from the man at the back. I feel um, like I've known you ages. Go, go. Hello, Sylvia. One. <laughs> so the, the, que the question is, um, one of the things that Crispin Hershey is disgusted by, and alternately disgusted that he loses, is his fandom to a degree. Yeah. How do you um, cope with that? And as you know, Sylvia was saying, the kind of dark corners of the internet where people are 
worshipping you, writing slash fiction about you. It's true. It happens. Don't Google yourself in that way. Oh, but, um, but, you know, but seriously, are you, are you aware blind, of a readership when, you, when you're writing? For example, Crispin talks about how at one point he says, in publishing, it's easier to change your body than it is to change genre. Is that the kind of consideration that you would be aware of um, or, or a readership at all? Uh, I'm, thanks for your question, Sylvia. Uh, I, I try not to think about it. Uh, I, I find it quite alarming that people would be kind of really devoutly enthusiastic about my work and my best and really in in inadequate response, or maybe it's the only response, is just to go and live in the west of Ireland where nobody knows me and don't do any Irish media and hide, basically. Um, Which is exactly what you've done. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I'm really happy. I, I'm 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 honoured. People give me their time, and as long as it's not an illegal download edition, their money. Um, I really am, and I don't take it for granted at all. Um, How did you feel when pe some people were disappointed at a thousand dollars of Jacob? Does it was a more straightforward, almost a kind of historical narrative? And some people were about like, oh, it's not a David Mitchell book. How did did you you aware of that? You must have seen it. Did it bother you? Uh, a bit, but that's an indicator that I'm doing the right thing. I, uh, I, well, I think, what would Kate Bush do? <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what I think, you know. And 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 and, Take and a question she, from the man there. <laughs> Hello. Yes. Yes. Hi. Hi. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much. Not right now. <laughs> no. I'm really honoured. Thank you. Uh, and so the question, question is about, I, I guess, sure. makes us think about the fact that you've done one 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 libretto and two Correct, you've yeah. done two now yeah, so yeah. and how what was that experience like uh, he's taking that as a yes but thank you <laughs> no <laughs> uh, it was i did them because i could because i could learn something from it um and because i had got a bit lonely living in my a cave in the west of ireland and uh wanted the pleasure of i guess being in a band of a couple of collaboration uh not really. And as a writer, of course, you work for four years in a room without a single... Did you work on Cloud Atlas? And, uh, and were you involved in that in any kind of... Uh, the film? Yeah, uh, yeah. No. Not the novel. No. I know you wrote the novel. The film. No, the novel. <laughs> the film, yes. The film. <laughs> um, uh, there's lots of things flying around. Uh, film, no. Uh, okay. The three directors, great writers, they don't need me. Right. Um... Opera. There's a writer in the second row who is multi-talented and can do both and can write for screen and uh, brilliant novels as well. I, 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 that's just kind of not my head. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, David, I'm not that clever. Uh, um, the operas were great fun to work on. I really enjoyed it. And I, as you say, I know what the, my next four or five books are. At the moment, for the last two, I can only write one every World Cup. Kind of one per World Cup, four years, twenty years, forty-four now. No, forty-five. It's worse than I thought. Sixty-five before the decks are then clear. I, I kind of don't have time. Uh, I, I'm. I feel I'm going to stick to what I. I, 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 I am wedded, and I hereby, before this fantastic audience, to uh, 
declare my betrothal to this art form, the novel. Uh, it's a beautiful, strange, baggy, capacious, tight, contradictory, ornery, forgiving, gentle, vicious form, and I love it. And I'd like to spend the rest of my life just learning a little bit more how to how to approach being a master of it. That seems like a great place to leave it for tonight. Thank you, Thank you so much to Alan Johnson, so to Esther Boyd, and to David Mitchell, and to all of you for being here tonight. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you.